Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, I would encourage you to go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on the programme today on what is a rainy autumn morning here in the capital is Steve Youngblood. Steve is the Managing Director of Sterling Chase Associates, a professional services company that provides sales and sales leadership consulting, training, coaching and assessment solutions to companies of all sizes across the UK, Europe and wider world. Uh, Steve, very warm welcome to you today and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on the programme, Scott. It's a real pleasure, Steve. It's a shame that it's um, not a nicer day for it weather-wise, but not to worry. We're all inside and warm away from the uh, the rain, which is nice. Um, normally, at this point in the show, we dive straight into the subject of leadership and bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate that we approach the subject matter from that angle because for leaders within all walks of life, it's proven to be such a huge challenge. But for yourselves at Sterling Chase, just to what extent has it actually affected things? It's been really interesting, Scott. Uh, because the services we provide um, are typically provided as a blend of physical um, programs and uh, in, in, in a face-to-face environment and, and also in a virtual environment, obviously, as you can imagine, we've had to shift to a totally virtual environment. Um, but because we were already doing a lot of that um, anyway, uh, because we work around the globe and we work with different time zones and we work in collaboration with our teams around the world and uh, for com- companies that have um, people in different locations, uh, virtual delivery was very effective for us anyway and very effective for our clients. So what that's done is accelerated um, that challenge um, and made us innovate more and make sure that our programs can be delivered totally virtually. So uh, demand for our services has actually gone up um, after the initial lockdown. And obviously, uh, a lot of clients and potential clients had their people furloughed. But as they came back to work, uh, those organizations realized that their sales organizations or sales teams had to do things differently and they needed a different go-to-market model. So um, a lot of them uh, have contacted us to say, can we help? Um, getting um, us, us ready for the new world. So that's been really interesting, and that's brought its own challenges in terms of making sure that we um, innovate and keep our standards high and make sure that we're flexible enough to meet the demands that come our way. Um, so, so, so in terms of our go-to-market and how we treat our clients, it's affected us. But obviously as well, because we've got people all around the world, um, it brings challenges in terms of, you know, because because they're facing their own situations, we have to keep in touch with them, we have to connect with them and, and just make sure that they're doing okay. I mean, um, their associates and therefore they're, they're uh, typically independent consultants that collaborate with us and work with us. So they have their own world, but we haven't got to forget that that might be a challenge for them. For them. And so, you know, a lot of the work has been keeping in touch with them over the virtual services and make sure they're part of the team and 
part of the plans as we go forward and that they have a contribution and, and feel wanted and feel part of the overall team. And that sort of emphasis toward remote working that we've seen during this time is one of those features of the lockdown period that could well become a permanent fixture in the way that we do business in this country, couldn't it? Because it's taught us so much about our working practices. Um, it's taught us a lot about the uh, the work-life balance um, as well. And there's now sustainability considerations coming into play also. Um, with all of that in mind, can you ever see the sort of conventional office environment as it was ever returning in vogue in the workplace of the future? I think it will return, but I think, and I hope, that we've learned lessons in, in terms of sustainability on the wider scale. I mean, in terms of the services we deliver, sustainability is really important in terms of, you know, our clients make a big investment in, uh, in services and, and solutions to change the way they work. And they need that to become sustainable. So the fact that we can provide um, immediate and flexible interventions to support them on an ongoing basis via the, this this virtual world can be can be really helpful. Um, but so so in terms of going back to how it was, I think that people are realising that there's a lot of travelling that has been going on that 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 is no longer necessary. People have been forced to adapt to that virtual world, to the point where, although there are potential issues with it in terms of concentration and, and low-level stress that builds up because because you're not physically with people, I think people have developed new skills and actually um, learned to cope with the imperfect world of the virtual communications. Mm. Um, and therefore, in, in direct answer to your question, I don't think it'll ever get back to how it was. But, but then again... There are some, you know, some interactions and meetings and, 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 and collaborations that really, really do benefit from face-to-face uh, environments. And therefore, I think what will happen is we'll go back to a more sensible balance and hopefully save the planet in the, in, on that journey. Mm. Let's certainly hope so from that point of view. And um, you are very right in saying that sometimes that face-to-face interaction is needed for the benefit of certain meetings and certain contexts. And as well as that, I think there is a mental health and well-being argument for having that in place as well, because sometimes we do need that interaction and it's something that we certainly did take for granted pre-pandemic. And just thinking about sort of, yeah, um, sorry, sorry to just cut you off there, Steve, but just thinking about sort of the um, the mental health and well-being side of things um, in a little bit more of a uh, broader sense. Um, when we think about the virtual world, um, how much of a challenge is it actually safeguarding that sort of well-being from a distance? Um, is that a difficult challenge, do you think? I think leaders need help with that. Um, to be quite honest, I think there's a lesson for all leaders in terms of communicating with their people more at all levels and more regularly and, and, and actually being fully present when they communicate and it being a true two-way conversation and actually learning to listen and being more uh, coaches and leaders uh, rather than managers. And I think what the current situation has done has made that, uh, first of all, all the more important because because in a virtual world, well, because of the environment we're in, there's a you know, there's greater risk of mental health issues. I think in a virtual world, it can be harder to detect mental health issues, but the leaders have got to be more skilled at being present and, and, and listening to their people and asking um, the right questions and having a collaborative 
relationship with them. So I think what we have to do is develop um, a more emotionally intelligent set of leaders. And, you know, that, that's been fashionable for a long time, but mm. this situation is now brought it to the forefront where it's absolutely critical. Um, otherwise, society as a whole is, is heading towards a, a much bigger problem. And I think it's incumbent and resp- on the, uh, the leaders in, in industry to take that on board and really work hard to look after the, the welfare of the people and, and safeguard them against potential mental health issues that come with the isolation, uh, the physical isolation uh, from the rest of the organisation. And as well, of course, as the um, the benefits of working in the virtual world and also the need to safeguard mental health and well-being, looking back over the last few months, are there any other major lessons you feel that leaders do need to take from this pandemic? Maybe something that you've learned during this time? Uh, I think we've got to be more, more adaptable. I mean, you know, we do a lot of work with uh, on, on strategy and growth strategies. Mm. And as you can imagine, predicting the future is 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 difficult. Uh, you know, pre- pre- predicting future income for businesses is, is very difficult. And predicting demand and how they'll satisfy that demand and how they will develop an agile um, service delivery model and uh, um, to, to satisfy that volatile demand. So, I think leaders have got to be more adaptable in terms of the the changes that are come that come their way and. Um, They've seen have this massive shock where COVID nineteen hit us, uh, and all bets were off in terms of forecasts on how businesses would continue to grow. Um, so, that, so they have to adapt their organisation to the new world and, and be prepared to have a more um, resilient organisation. But they have to adapt their leadership, uh, be more creative and innovative. In, and more resilient to um, changes in, in the operating environment. And that's always been true of leaders, but it's just been brought home uh, so much. And I mm-hmm. think the volatility will continue for quite some time. And, and therefore, they're going to have to be uh, versatile in how they lead and, and the decisions they make. And they're going to have to be resilient in terms of their own um, presence and ability to cope under pressure. And I think it's something that the younger generations of emerging leaders are certainly going to have to embrace as well, isn't it? That ability to adapt, because I imagine many of them may well be tuning into this podcast now and listening um, out to what's going on um, in the wider world, what COVID-19 is doing to the economy and doing to their employment prospects and may become quite easily downhearted about the whole situation. But it is a time to think this is a time to adapt myself. There will be opportunities out there and there is still a way that I can go out and embark on that road to success, even in such an uncertain landscape. Yeah, that's true. I mean, um, you know, I was in the employment market in the seventies where, um, you know, the economy was really difficult. Um, uh, well, late seventies, I have to say, but an early eighties, but it was really difficult. But, but this is a, a challenge like no other time or certainly not, not in, not in our times. But, but I think principle of um, be relevant and be different and, and, and be able to demonstrate that you can add value in, in uh, the current world uh, has not gone away. I mean, that, that, that's always been the case. It, it, it's just that 
is, is a very dynamic, and I keep using the word, but volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world. But the good thing about millennials is that they kind of, you know, the world they've been brought up in, they do adapt to change. They are actually resilient to uh, different environments, and they're very used to working in a virtual world um, and using tech. So I would say that, you know, th this is a real opportunity for them to shine and to take organizations forward into a different era. So I'm, I'm hopeful and I, I'm, I'm always optimistic. And, you know, there are fabulous young people out there. Just, mm. just be as good as you can be and be as relevant as you can be and, and, and consider your proposition when you're looking for jobs. You know, why would this company want to employ me and what, how and why can I make a difference? And there's a great entrepreneurial spirit amongst the young people in this country as well, isn't it? Which is something that's going to prove so, so important during the uh, the next few months. And albeit it is difficult to look too far ahead at the moment because the long term is no longer months and years. It's now essentially days, weeks and maybe one month at best. But if we think about what the next year may have in store and given all the variables that are in play just before we do wrap things up on the programme this morning, Steve, um, where is it in an ideal world that you would like Sterling Chase to be perhaps one year from now? And what is it that you're really hoping to have achieved by that point in time? If we could sort of pretend we have a crystal ball for a moment and can look that far ahead. I think to absolutely learn from all of the lessons that the market has thrown at us over the past few years and have a strategy that um, is absolutely resilient to the future and based on a virtual world. You know, we, do, we, we will not lose our values at delivering customer service excellence to our clients and being there for them and adding real tangible value. I think what we need to do is probably bring a more diverse workforce. And by that, I mean, you know, bring the millennials into that environment where we have a, have a diverse, a more diverse team um, that can not only adapt to the virtual environment that we're going to all going to have to work in, but actually bring innovative ideas and thoughts that can transform what we do and transport, continue to transform and innovate on the value that we deliver to our customers. So um, I'm very optimistic. As I said, that you know, business is good for us, which I know a lot of organizations are not in that position, and I feel sorry for them. But we all have to adapt, and what we had done is adapt. I guess a, a bit of luck came our way, and that, that adaptation was resilient to, to what happened. But there will be more shocks that come our way, and we've just always got to reinvent ourselves and mm. reinvention of ourselves involves uh, getting young fresh thoughts and um, different ideas and, and, and inputs to what we do and working forward as a team so I, I'm very hopeful and I'm looking forward to the future um, and, and, and I'm quite excited but, but I also realise that there are a lot of people not in the fortunate position that I and we are and therefore you know hoping that we can help and mentor other organizations along the way. 
It's exactly it, isn't it? Um, nobody, um, of course, is in sort of the most beneficial position at the moment. Some may be, of course, better off than others, but there is always a need across the board for reinvention, for innovation. And we've seen that on an unprecedented scale over the last few months. And that is a positive that I really do hope that we continue to see. And over the next few months, I really hope there are some very positive developments behind the scenes at Sterling Chase as well, Steve. And on that point, in fact, given just the amount of variables that there still are in this whole situation. I think it would be wonderful to catch up in the next year or so and have you back on our programme just to see how things are starting to play out once that landscape becomes a little bit clearer. I'd be more than happy to do so, Scott. I hope we can all create a caring world as we make that journey into the future. I certainly hope so as well. Um, This must be some positive news to share on the horizon because we are getting quite a lot of doom and gloom at the moment. And ultimately as well, positivity is infectious and I think we could all use a real dose of that to really boost the morale at this time. Yeah, I think we've got some tough times ahead with the second wave as it's moving across Europe and volatility in the markets, etc. But I think if we stick together and start, you know, uh, think about ourselves as members of the society and communities and businesses that have to pull together and pull through it. I'm absolutely hopeful and confident that we'll get there. It is food for thought for everybody. It is a time for unity and hopefully we can all pull together for the greater good. Absolutely right. Um, Steve, I have to say it's been a real pleasure welcoming you onto the programme this morning and thank you ever so much once again for joining us. And until we do hopefully get a chance to speak again, please do take care and stay safe with all that's still going on. And you too and all the listeners too. Thanks very much, Scott, for having me on the program and uh, look forward to meeting you again. Likewise, Steve, and I would love to echo that message that Steve left there for all of the listeners tuning into the programme. Please do stay well and do be considerate of others too, because it makes such a key difference in saving lives at this most trying time. Um, It was a pleasure for me to welcome Steve Youngblood, the Managing Director of Sterling Chase, onto today's programme. Next up on the show today, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett, who enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth. Lord Blunkett held a number of senior positions in the cabinet of Tony Blair during the latter's premiership and served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. His political exploits saw him elevated to Parliament's upper house in August 2015. And I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to catch up with him. All of that is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can 
uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. 
Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government. I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and... Um, and the U.S., and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed 
without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, 
we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food, a lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about 
is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002 when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer 
where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so I very much if I were in government and I always think of things in that context what would I do if I were in government I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. So Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. 
and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, 
uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, for the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.